Section 8 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 3, by James Boswell, Section 8. I was present at this very extraordinary scene. The person arraigned, and his father and brother, who had also had a share both of the reproof from the pulpit and in the retaliation, brought an action against Mr. Thompson in the court of session for defamation and damages, and I was one of the counsel for the reverend defendant. The liberty of the pulpit was our great ground of defence, but we argued also on the provocation of the previous attack, and on the instant retaliation. The court of session, however, the fifteen judges, who are at the same time the jury, decided against the minister, contrary to my humble opinion and several of them expressed themselves with indignation against him. He was an aged gentleman, formerly a military chaplain, and a man of high spirit and honour. Johnson was satisfied that the judgment was wrong, and dictated to me the following argument in confutation of it. Of the censure pronounced from the pulpit, our determination must be formed, as in other cases, by consideration of the action itself and the particular circumstances with which it is invested. The right of censure and rebuke seems necessarily a pendant to the pastoral office. He to whom the care of a congregation is entrusted is considered as the shepherd of a flock, as the teacher of a school, as the father of a family. As a shepherd, tending not his own sheep, but those of his master, he is answerable for those that stray, and that lose themselves by straying. But no man can be answerable for losses which he has not power to prevent, or for vagrancy which he has not authority to restrain. As a teacher giving instruction for wages, and liable to reproach, if those whom he undertakes to inform make no proficiency, he must have the power of enforcing attendance, of awakening negligence, and repressing contradiction. As a father, he possesses the paternal authority of admonition, rebuke, and punishment. He cannot, without reducing his office to an empty name, be hindered from the exercise of any practice necessary to stimulate the idle, to reform the vicious, to check the petulant, and correct the stubborn. If we inquire into the practice of the primitive church, we shall, I believe, find the ministers of the word exercising the whole authority of this complicated character. We shall find them not only encouraging the good by exhortation, 
but terrifying the wicked by reproof and denunciation in the earlier stages of the church while religion was yet pure from secular advantages the punishment of sinners was public censure and open penance penalties inflicted merely by ecclesiastical authority at a time while the church had yet no help from the civil power while the hand of the magistrate lifted only the rod of persecution and when governors were ready to afford a refuge to all those who fled from clerical authority that the church therefore had once a power of public censure is evident because that power was frequently exercised that it borrowed not its power from the civil authority is likewise certain because civil authority was at that time its enemy. The hour came at length when, after three hundred years of struggle and distress, truth took possession of imperial power, and the civil laws lent their aid to the ecclesiastical constitutions. The magistrate from that time cooperated with the priest and clerical sentences were made efficacious by secular force. But the state, when it came to the assistance of the church, had no intention to diminish its authority. Those rebukes and those censures which were lawful before were lawful still. But they had hitherto operated only upon voluntary submission. The refractory and contemptuous were at first in no danger of temporal severities, except what they might suffer from the reproaches of conscience or the detestation of their fellow Christians. When religion obtained the support of law, if admonitions and censures had no effect, they were seconded by the magistrates with coercion and punishment. It therefore appears from ecclesiastical history that the right of inflicting shame by public censure has always been considered as inherent in the church, and that this right was not conferred by a civil power, for it was exercised when the civil power operated against it. By the civil power it was never taken away. For the Christian magistrate interposed his office not to rescue sinners from censure, but to supply more powerful means of reformation, to add pain where shame was insufficient. And when men were proclaimed unworthy of the society of the faithful, to restrain them by imprisonment from spreading abroad the contagion of wickedness. It is not improbable that from this acknowledged power of public censure grew in time the practice of auricular confession. Those who dreaded the blast of public reprehension were willing to submit themselves to the priest by a private accusation of themselves and to obtain a reconciliation with the church by a kind of clandestine absolution and invisible penance conditions with which the priest would in times of ignorance and corruption easily comply as they increased his influence 
by adding the knowledge of secret sins to that of notorious offences and enlarged his authority by making him the sole arbiter of the terms of reconcilement from this bondage the reformation set us free the minister has no longer power to press into the retirements of conscience to torture us by interrogatories or put himself in possession of our secrets and our lives but though we have thus controlled his usurpations his just and original power remains unimpaired he may still see though he may not pry he may yet hear though he may not question and that knowledge which his eyes and ears force upon him it is still his duty to use for the benefit of his flock a father who lives near a wicked neighbour may forbid his son to frequent his company a minister who has in his congregation a man of open and scandalous wickedness may warn his parishioners to shun his conversation to warn them is not only lawful but not to warn them would be criminal he may warn them one by one in friendly converse or by a parochial visitation but if he may warn each man singly what shall forbid him to warn them altogether of that which is to be made known to all how is there any difference whether it be communicated to each singly or to all together what is known to all must necessarily be public whether it shall be public at once or public by degrees is the only question and of a sudden and solemn publication the impression is deeper and the warning more effectual it may easily be urged if a minister be thus left at liberty to delate sinners from the pulpit and to publish at will the crimes of a parishioner he may often blast the innocent and distress the timorous he may be suspicious and condemn without evidence he may be rash and judge without examination he may be severe and treat slight offences with too much harshness he may be malignant and partial and gratify his private interest or resentment under the shelter of his pastoral character of all this there is possibility and of all this there is danger but if possibility of evil be to exclude good no good ever can be done if nothing is to be attempted in which there is danger we must all sink into hopeless inactivity the evils that may be feared from this practice arise not from any defect in the institution but from the infirmities of human nature power in whatever hands it is placed will be sometimes improperly exerted yet courts of law must judge though they will sometimes judge amiss a father must instruct his children though he himself may often want instruction a minister must censure sinners though his censure 
may be sometimes erroneous by want of judgment and sometimes unjust by want of honesty if we examine the circumstances of the present case we shall find the sentence neither erroneous nor unjust we shall find no breach of private confidence no intrusion into secret transactions the fact was notorious and indubitable so easy to be proved that no proof was desired the act was base and treacherous the perpetration insolent and open and the example naturally mischievous the minister however being retired and recluse had not yet heard what was publicly known throughout the parish and on occasion of a public election warned his people according to his duty against the crimes which public elections frequently produce his warning was felt by one of his parishioners as pointed particularly at himself but instead of producing as might be wished private compunction and immediate reformation it kindled only rage and resentment he charged his minister in a public paper with scandal defamation and falsehood the minister thus reproached had his own character to vindicate upon which his pastoral authority must necessarily depend to be charged with a defamatory lie is an injury which no man patiently endures in common life to be charged with polluting the pastoral office with scandal and falsehood was a violation of character still more atrocious as it affected not only his personal but his clerical veracity his indignation naturally rose in proportion to his honesty and with all the fortitude of injured honesty he dared this calumniator in the church and at once exonerated himself from censure and rescued his flock from deception and from danger the man whom he accuses pretends not to be innocent or at least only pretends for he declines a trial the crime of which he is accused has frequent opportunities and strong temptations it has already spread far with much depravation of private morals and much injury to public happiness to warn the people therefore against it was not wanton and officious but necessary and pastoral what then is the fault with which this worthy minister is charged he has usurped no dominion over conscience he has exerted no authority in support of doubtful and controverted opinions he has not dragged into light a bashful and corrigible sinner his censure was directed against a breach of morality against an act which no man justifies the man who appropriated this censure to himself is evidently and notoriously guilty his consciousness of his own wickedness incited him to attack his faithful reprover with open insolence and printed accusations 
such an attack made defence necessary and we hope it will be at last decided that the means of defence were just and lawful when i read this to mr burke he was highly pleased and exclaimed well he does his work in a workmanlike manner footnote as a proof of dr johnson's extraordinary powers of composition it appears from the original manuscript of this excellent dissertation of which he dictated the first eight paragraphs on the tenth of may and the remainder on the thirteenth that there are in the whole only seven corrections or rather variations and those not considerable such were at once the vigorous and accurate emanations of his mind boswell End of footnote. mr thompson wished to bring the cause by appeal before the house of lords but was dissuaded by the advice of the noble person who lately presided so ably in that most honourable house and who was then attorney-general as my readers will no doubt be glad also to read the opinion of this eminent man upon the same subject i shall here insert it case there is herewith laid before you one petition for the reverend mr james thompson minister of dumfermline two answers thereto three copy of the judgment of the court of session upon both four notes of the opinions of the judges being the reasons upon which their decree is grounded these papers you are pleased to peruse and give your opinion whether there is a probability of the above decree of the court of sessions being reversed if mr thompson should appeal from the same i don't think the appeal advisable not only because the value of the judgment is in no degree adequate to the expense but because there are many chances that upon the general complexion of the case the impression will be taken to the disadvantage of the appellant it is impossible to approve the style of that sermon but the complaint was not less ungracious from that man who had behaved so ill by his original libel and at the time when he received the reproach he complains of in the last article all the plaintiffs are equally concerned it struck me also with some wonder that the judges should think so much fervour apposite to the occasion of reproving the defendant for a little excess upon the matter however i agree with them in condemning the behaviour of the minister and in thinking it a subject fit for ecclesiastical censure and even for an action if any individual could qualify a wrong and a damage arising from it footnote it is curious to observe that lord thurlow has here perhaps in compliment to north britain made use of a term of the scotch law which to an english reader may require explanation to qualify a wrong is to point out and establish it boswell end of footnote but this i doubt the circumstance of 
publishing the reproach in a pulpit though extremely indecent and culpable in another view does not constitute a different sort of wrong or any other rule of law than would have obtained if the same words had been pronounced elsewhere i don't know whether there be any difference in the law of scotland in the definition of slander before the commissaries or the court of session the common law of england does not give way to actions for every reproachful word an action cannot be brought for general damages upon any words which import less than an offence cognizable by law consequently no action could have been brought here for the words in question both laws admit the truth to be a justification in action for words and the law of england does the same in actions for libels the judgment therefore seems to me to have been wrong in that the court repelled that defence e thurlow i am now to record a very curious incident in dr johnson's life which fell under my own observation of which pars magna fui and which i am persuaded will with the liberal-minded be much to his credit footnote quae miserima vidi et quorum pars magna fui which thing myself unhappy did behold yea and was no small part thereof end of footnote my desire of being acquainted with celebrated men of every description had made me much about the same time obtain an introduction to dr samuel johnson and to john wilkes esq two men more different could perhaps not be selected out of all mankind they had even attacked one another with some asperity in their writings footnote in the year seventeen seventy in the false alarm johnson attacked wilkes with more than some asperity the character of the man he wrote i have no purpose to delineate lampoon itself would disdain to speak ill of him of whom no man speaks well he called him a retailer of sedition and obscenity and he said we are now disputing whether middlesex shall be represented or not by a criminal from a jail in the north britain wilkes quoting johnson's definition of a pensioner asks is the said mr johnson a dependent or is he a slave of state hired by a stipend to obey his master there is according to him no alternative as mr johnson has i think failed in this account may i after so great an authority venture at a short definition of so intricate a word a pension then i would call a gratuity during the pleasure of the prince for services performed or expected to be performed to himself or to the state let us consider the celebrated mr johnson and a few other late pensioners in this light End of footnote. 
yet i lived in habits of friendship with both footnote boswell in his letter to the people of scotland mentions my old classical companion wilkes and adds with whom i pray you to excuse my keeping company he is so pleasant End of footnote. i could fully relish the excellence of each for i have ever delighted in that intellectual chemistry which can separate good qualities from evil in the same person sir john pringle mine own friend and my father's friend between whom and dr johnson i in vain wished to establish an acquaintance footnote, when johnson was going to auchinleck boswell begged him in talking with his father to avoid three topics as to which they differed very widely whiggism presbyterianism and sir john pringle pringle was president of the royal society who sat in newton's chair and wondered how the devil he got there he was one of franklin's friends and so was likely to be uncongenial to johnson End of footnote. as i respected and lived in intimacy with both of them observed to me once very ingeniously it is not in friendship as in mathematics where two things each equal to a third are equal between themselves you agree with johnson as a middle quality and you agree with me as a middle quality but johnson and i should not agree sir john was not sufficiently flexible so i desisted knowing indeed that the repulsion was equally strong on the part of johnson who i know not from what cause unless his being a scotchman had formed a very erroneous opinion of sir john but i conceived an irresistible wish if possible to bring dr johnson and mr wilkes together how to manage it was a nice and difficult matter my worthy booksellers and friends messrs dilly in the poultry footnote at this house johnson owned he always found a good dinner end of footnote at whose hospitable and well-covered table i have seen a greater number of literary men than at any other except that of sir joshua reynolds had invited me to meet mr wilkes and some more gentlemen on wednesday may fifteenth pray said i let us have dr johnson what with mr wilkes not for the world said mr edward dilly dr johnson would never forgive me come said i if you'll let me negotiate for you i will be answerable that all shall go well dilly nay if you will take it upon you i am sure i shall be very happy to see them both here notwithstanding the high veneration which i entertained for dr johnson i was sensible that he was sometimes a little actuated by the spirit of contradiction and by means of that 
I hoped I should gain my point. I was persuaded that if I had come upon him with a direct proposal, Sir, would you dine in company with Jack Wilkes? He would have flown into a passion, and would probably have answered, Dine with Jack Wilkes, sir? I'd as soon dine with Jack Ketch. Footnote. This has been circulated, as if actually said by Johnson, when the truth is, it was only supposed by me. Boswell. End of footnote. I therefore, while we were sitting quietly by ourselves at his house in an evening, took occasion to open my plan thus. Mr. Dilly, sir, sends his respectful compliments to you, and will be happy if you would do him the honour to dine with him on Wednesday next, along with me, as I must soon go to Scotland. Johnson. Sir, I am obliged to Mr. Dilly. I will wait upon him. Boswell. Provided, sir, I suppose, that the company which he is to have is agreeable to you. Johnson. What do you mean, sir? What do you take me for? Do you think I am so ignorant of the world as to imagine that I am too prescribed to a gentleman what company he is to have at his table? Boswell. I beg your pardon, sir, for wishing to prevent you from meeting people whom you might not like. Perhaps he may have some of what he calls his patriotic friends with him. Johnson. Well, sir, and what then? What care I for his patriotic friends? Pah! Footnote. Don't let them be patriots, he said to Mr. Hoole, when he asked him to collect a city club. End of footnote. Boswell. I should not be surprised to find Jack Wilkes there. Johnson. And if Jack Wilkes should be there, what is that to me, sir? My dear friend, let us have no more of this. I am sorry to be angry with you, but really, it is treating me strangely to talk to me as if I could not meet any company whatever, occasionally. Boswell. Pray forgive me, sir. I meant well. But you shall meet whoever comes, for me. Thus I secured him and told Dilly that he would find him very well pleased to be one of his guests on the day appointed. Upon the much-expected Wednesday, I called on him about half an hour before dinner, as I often did when we were to dine out together, to see that he was ready in time, and to accompany him. I found him buffeting his books, as upon a former occasion, covered with dust, and making no preparation for going abroad. "'How is this, sir?' said I. "'Don't you recollect that we are to dine at Mr. Dilly's?' Johnson. "'Sir, I did not think of going to Dilly's. It went out of my head. I have ordered dinner at home with Mrs. Williams.' Boswell. But, my dear sir, you know you were engaged to Mr. Dilly, and I told him so. He will expect you, and will be much disappointed if you don't come. Johnson. 
you must talk to mrs williams about this here was a sad dilemma i feared that what i was so confident i had secured would yet be frustrated he had accustomed himself to show mrs williams such a degree of humane attention as frequently imposed some restraint upon him and i knew that if she should be obstinate he would not stir i hastened downstairs to the blind lady's room and told her i was in great uneasiness for dr johnson had engaged me to dine this day at mr dilly's but that he had told me he had forgotten his engagement and had ordered dinner at home yes sir said she pretty peevishly dr johnson is to dine at home madam said i his respect for you is such that i know he will not leave you unless you absolutely desire it but as you have so much of his company i hope you will be good enough to forgo it for a day as mr dilly is a very worthy man has frequently had agreeable parties at his house for dr johnson and will be vexed if the doctor neglects him to-day and then madam be pleased to consider my situation i carried the message and i assured mr dilly that dr johnson was to come and no doubt he has made a dinner and invited a company and boasted of the honour he expected to have i shall be quite disgraced if the doctor is not there she gradually softened to my solicitations which were certainly as earnest as most entreaties to ladies upon any occasion and was graciously pleased to empower me to tell dr johnson that all things considered she thought he should certainly go i flew back to him still in dust and careless of what should be the event indifferent in his choice to go or stay footnote indifference in his choice to sleep or die addison's cato act five scene one end of footnote but as soon as i had announced to him mrs williams consent he roared frank a clean shirt and was very soon dressed when i had him fairly seated in a hackney coach with me i exulted as much as a fortune hunter who has got an heiress into a post-chaise with him to set out for gretna green when we entered mr dilly's drawing-room he found himself in the midst of a company he did not know i kept myself snug and silent watching how he should conduct himself i observed him whispering to mr dilly who is that gentleman sir mr arthur lee johnson two 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 under his breath which was one of his habitual mutterings mr arthur lee could not but be very obnoxious to johnson for he was not only a patriot but an american footnote he was at this time employed by congress as a private and confidential agent in england
Dr. Franklin had arranged for letters to be sent to him not by post, but by private hand, under cover to his brother, Mr. Alderman Lee. End of footnote. He was afterwards minister from the United States at the court of Madrid. And who was the gentleman in lace? Mr. Wilkes, sir. This information confounded him still more. He had some difficulty to restrain himself, and taking up a book, sat down upon a window-seat, and read, or at least kept his eye upon it intently for some time, till he composed himself. His feelings, I dare say, were awkward enough, but he no doubt recollected his having rated me for supposing that he could be at all disconcerted by any company, and he therefore resolutely set himself to behave quite as an easy man of the world, who could adapt himself at once to the disposition and manners of those whom he might chance to meet. The cheering sound of dinner is upon the table dissolved his reverie, and we all sat down without any symptom of ill-humour. There were present, beside Mr. Wilkes and Mr. Arthur Lee, who was an old companion of mine when he studied physic at Edinburgh, Mr. now Sir John Miller, Dr. Letson, and Mr. Slater the druggist. Mr. Wilkes placed himself next to Dr. Johnson, and behaved to him with so much attention and politeness that he gained upon him insensibly. Footnote. When Wilkes, the year before, during his meralty, had presented an address, the king himself owned he had never seen so well-bred a Lord Mayor. End of footnote. End of section 8.